our Savior. This is God's word. Amen. You can be seated. Preschoolers, you guys can make your way out to your class. Teachers are in the back of the room there. Staying in the room with us, I want to invite you to turn with me to Titus. Paul's letter to Titus toward the end of the New Testament here. Titus, we've got the pastoral epistles, 1 Timothy, 2 Timothy, and then Titus. We're in Titus 2 today, walking through this letter uh, verse by verse, spending five weeks doing that. This will take us all the way to Advent. Make your way to Titus 2. We're going to be looking at the first 10 verses. This is Amanda just read for us there. Uh, Just as a reminder, Titus, Titus was a letter that was written by the Apostle Paul to his protege, his co-worker in the gospel, Titus. So Paul, he did ministry with a lot of people, and Timothy was one, Titus is one as well. This is somebody that traveled with Paul, did ministry with him. Uh, What we learned last week is that uh, Paul had heard that the gospel had made inroads in uh, the island of Crete, and so he heard there were little uh, communities of Christians gathering there. He wanted to see for himself how things were going. He and Titus traveled to Crete, and things are not going well. Uh, it, there's a lot of disorganization. Uh, there are a lot of issues that he sees. A lot of Cretan culture had sort of fused in with the culture of the church, and there were issues. And so Paul, he, he had other things to do, and so he leaves Titus uh, there to, to take care of the issues for him, and he writes him this letter to, to reiterate his instructions and give him the apostolic authority that he needs in order to set things right, as Paul instructs him to do in these churches. Uh, you know, we also learned last week that one of the biggest issues in the churches on this island was the influence of hypocritical leaders in the churches. The, the hypocrisy of the leaders, not only their false teaching, we know they're false teachers, they're, they're uh, of the circumcision party, they're likely teaching a sort of a works-based salvation that, yes, you must believe in Jesus to be saved, but you also have to obey the law. You also have to be circumcised, and then you'll truly belong to the people of God. This was the, the incorrect, the, the false content of their teaching. But a, a bigger issue that Paul had with the leaders in the churches in Crete Uh, that were influencing the believers there was that they were hypocrites and their hypocrisy was opening the door for cultural assimilation rather than assimilation to Christ. And that's why the letter of Titus is one of Paul's most practical letters. You you go to the book of Romans and you can find tons of, of practical things you can draw from it, but it is a doctrinal exposition. It is theology. Uh, Titus has doctrine in it, it has theology, but it is primarily practical. Here's what you are to do. And that's because Paul's biggest concern is found in Titus 1, verse 16. They profess to know God, but they deny him. How? How do they deny him? By their works, not by their beliefs, not, not by their teaching. They deny him by their works. They are detestable, disobedient, unfit for any good work. Here's what we're we're trying to see. A beautiful church, a beautiful church is a church that professes to know God and then confirms that profession 
by our good works. That is a beautiful church. Paul's desire for the churches of Crete, and by extension, our church, is that we would become people who radiate the character of God, not just people who know a lot of stuff about God. And Titus 2 takes us to that next step, that next level, and shows us how to do that. You might could say, as a lot of people have, that Titus 2 is Paul's description of the church's discipleship. So we're going to talk about discipleship today, growing into a church that beautifies the gospel, requires a vision for discipleship, but it requires a vision for discipleship that is far bigger and far clearer than what we typically think of when we hear the word. Discipleship is at the heart of our church's mission. We exist to make disciples who love God and others, and we believe the primary ways we do that is through gospel doctrine, gospel culture, and gospel mission. But it's important that it is at the heart of our church's mission because discipleship is absolutely necessary if we have any hope of becoming like Jesus. You cannot, hear me, you cannot become like Jesus by yourself. It, it does not work that way. You, that might be a little bit of an exaggeration. There may, may not technically be impossible for someone to grow in the likeness of Jesus on an island completely by themselves. It's just unheard of. It is completely outside the scope of biblical Christianity. We need discipleship, which means we need one another if we're going to become like Jesus. Now, right here at the front, I want to get you thinking about it. When you hear the word discipleship, what comes to mind? Take just a second. What comes to mind? You hear discipleship, what comes to mind? And we're all probably going to have different answers If you grew up in church, you're definitely going to have an answer that may be different from another person who grew up in a different context, different tradition. What is discipleship? What comes to mind? Some of us, when we hear that word, we immediately think of classrooms. You think of classes. You think think of a teacher at the front. You think, in my church growing up, you had a a table, a lot like the tables we have in the the fellowship hall down there, just in the room, and and kids sitting on either side, a teacher at the end, opening up a a Sunday school literature, and we're walking through it together. That's what discipleship would have been for me growing up. I think of a classroom. Uh, Maybe some of you, when you hear discipleship, you think of mentors. You you know, you you have people in the church who are older, and they're mentors, and they, they disciple those who are younger than them. And so discipleship is when you meet one-on-one with someone. Uh, maybe you imagine a coffee house or, or, you know, your backyard or, you know, your front porch, and you're meeting with someone for the purpose of discipleship. Um, maybe some of you think of small groups. What is discipleship? What is it? We tend to answer that question with strategies. So what is discipleship? Well, it's when you meet one-on-one with someone, you talk about the gospel and all that. Okay, that's a strategy. You know, well, what is discipleship? Well, it's, you know, it's classes that you take to learn more about who God is and what the scriptures teach. And okay, well, yeah, that's a strategy. But what is discipleship? Titus 2 actually gives a beautiful picture of discipleship itself. It shows us how our collective pursuit of Jesus creates a beautiful church. So let's talk about what discipleship is in three ways. Beautiful discipleship, we'll call it. It has three parts, three parts we can draw from this passage. First, uh, the people. Second, the plan. Third, the power. The people of discipleship, the plan of discipleship, and the power of discipleship. First, before we go any further, we have to talk about who's being discipled and who is discipling. The people. 
the people of discipleship. Paul here, he, he instructs Titus right at the beginning. He says, teach what accords with sound doctrine or healthy teaching. Now, now he's saying a lot more than just teach sound doctrine. Earlier, one of, the, one of the expectations, one of the priorities, convictions of an elder is that they must be able to teach sound doctrine and then rebuke and refute those who contradict the sound doctrine. And so whenever you hear sound doctrine and teach together, you think, okay, teach sound doctrine. That's not what he's, he's really saying here to Titus in this, in this part. Of course, Titus has to teach sound doctrine. But what he's saying here is that in order to build churches that radiate the beauty of God in their lives, they need to learn not just the sound doctrine, not just the truths of Christianity. They need to learn what accords with sound doctrine. I love how the CSB translates it. It says, but you are to proclaim things consistent with sound teaching. You see, he wants Titus to teach the practical implications of the sound doctrine of the gospel. It's important for us to not just know the truth of the gospel. It's important for us to know how to put the truth of the gospel into practice. And so the goal of every church and every Christian is, very simple, consistency. Consistency. Allow your transformation to match your truth. The truth of the gospel should be matched with the way we're living our lives, the way that we're being transformed. And so here in, in this passage, we're answering the question, what do lives consistent with sound doctrine look like? What do the lives look like? And so what Paul does is he offers specific instructions for different kinds of people in the church. He instructs older men and older women, younger men and younger women, and even slaves. And he says, this is what it looks like when your life is consistent with sound doctrine. But, but this is really important. Before we dive into those specific instructions, we've we got to make one simple, one easily forgotten, one absolutely crucial point. Every church member matters. Every single one. Every single person in this church matters. You see, in addressing older men and in in addressing older women and then also younger men and also younger women and also slaves or maybe your translation says bond servants, Paul shows us that a healthy church needs both the old and the young, both the rich and the poor. People from every walk of life in a church are needed for us to display the beautiful character of God. And this is groundbreaking because in Greco-Roman societies and cultures, there was a strict social hierarchy a social ladder that was, that was all but impossible to climb. And so your value in these cultures was tied to your social status. It's tied to it. It's linked to it. So if you're an, an older, wealthier, land-owning man, you have more value to the society and in the world than a woman or a slave, a younger woman in particular. You don't, you don't have as much value. It's t- your value is tied to your social status. And listen, I know it can feel that way today. And, and sometimes, unfortunately, in the church it can feel that way. That you're more valuable in some church cultures if you're married with kids. You're more valuable. Or, or if you're wealthy. Or if you're influential in the community. Or if you're older. 
Or if you're younger, depending on the church culture that you're a part of, your value can be tied to your status in life, your life circumstances, and so your value is tied to that. It's easy to feel that way. But this is what was so groundbreaking at this time when this was written, and it's still groundbreaking today. The gospel of Jesus is so radically transformative. In the church, our value, our worth, our dignity is not attributed to social class or age or gender. Our value is attributed to Jesus. The cross of Christ levels the playing field, and we're all on the same plane, old and young, rich and poor, men and women. All of us together forms this beautiful tapestry. We're valuable. We're necessary for the church to be beautiful. We can't all be exactly the same with regard to our, our standing in the culture or, or our you know, demographic status, whether we're men or women or younger or older. If we're all exactly the same, we do not display the beauty of the character of God in the same way that we do when we're all different from different backgrounds and find our unity, find our similarity in Jesus, find our value in him. Paul addresses every type of person in the church for the most part. And the reason that I make this point before we start walking through like some of the expectations is when he gives the expectations, there are people who are left out. He doesn't address every single type of person who could possibly be in the church. He doesn't. For example, whenever he addresses younger women, it might be more accurate to say he's addressing younger wives because a lot of the instructions relate primarily to to wives and not necessarily women who are single. So is that to say that that Paul says that either single women are off the hook, hey, look, this isn't for you, live however you want. Like, this is just for the married women. Like, you're not married, just live however you want. No, of course not. Is it to say Paul doesn't value people who aren't married? No, of course not. not. That's not what it's about. Every single person in the church matters. The slave is addressed in the same way right along with the older men. Ordinary, often belittled slaves, indignified, often wealthier, older men, equal in the economy of God's kingdom. There is no such thing as a second-class citizen in the kingdom of God, and there is no such thing as an unimportant church member. There's no such thing. We each carry with us the dignity of Jesus himself, who has united himself to us. So, so there can be no superiority complexes in the church. This is what it means for discipleship. Beautiful discipleship means the pursuit of godliness is for every single one of us. No one's off the hook. It, this isn't something that you have to wait until you reach a certain status in life or you have to rate, wait until you reach a certain age or you, know, you have to wait until you reach a certain life circumstance and then you, know, you are meant to start pursuing the likeness of Jesus. No, no, no. If you have been united to Jesus by faith, if you're a believer in Jesus, then you, whatever your status in life, whatever your gender, whatever, whoever you are, you are expected to pursue godliness. We're all expected to grow in Christ. I notice, I notice this, especially in Paul's instructions to slaves. I, I gotta, I'm always uncomfortable when I read passages like that 
Even even though we know, we know from the New Testament that slaves in Paul's churches, they were viewed as complete equals to anyone else in the church. That's just how it worked in in the the cultures of the churches that Paul was planting. I mean, it's just how how it was. But when Paul gives, like, more instructions, if we're just counting here, he gives more instructions to the slaves than he does to the younger men. He, he tells the slaves all these, like, listen out, five or six different things. And then to the younger men, he's like, and you guys be self-controlled. Now, to the slaves, like, you guys, like, really, you got some work to do. I'm always like, man, take Paul. Come on, take it easy on these guys. Like, they probably have it hard enough already. Why, why are you calling them to do all of these things? Like, it just it seems calloused, and, you know, that, that's how I initially... Really, but that attitude that I'm prone to have when I approach passages like this, it just assumes that Paul's instructions are burdens and not gifts. These instructions that we're going to see here, they are gifts of grace, recognizing the dignity of every single person in the church, no matter their life circumstances. In, in this culture, slaves belong to Christ as much as anyone else. And so they must pursue Christ-likeness like everyone else. Remember that the next time that you feel belittled or if you're tempted to belittle someone in the church. To, the, to my youngest brothers and sisters in Christ in the room, children in the room who are trusting in Jesus. You are expected to grow into the image of Jesus just like I am, just like your parents are, just like the elders of our church are. There's no, there's no hierarchy here where there are different, you know, expectations for, for different people based on where they are. And once you reach a certain status, then you get to really be a Christian. No. You are called to be like Jesus, just like the rest of us. And, and here's why I say that. It's so tempting to think if you're young, especially if you're really young and you're in this room, that you don't matter, that's, that, that you're just sort of forgotten that this, everything happening here is really for the grown-ups, you know, for the, for the real Christians. And then some of the grown-ups can even feel that way, too. If you feel like, you know, oh, look, I am not a very impressive Christian. I, I don't know how much of this is for me. I'll, I'll let the real faithful ones get a lot out of this, and I'll just kind of be here. And maybe one day I'll be able to pull something out of this. No. It matters that you're in this room sitting under the preached word. It matters that you take the Lord's Supper. It matters that you pray with us. It matters that you're here growing with us together. We're not waiting for any of you to reach a certain age, reach, reach a certain status before you can start growing in Christ. If you're a member of our church, no matter your age, your name is on our membership roll. Your name is there. You're, you're, you're on an elder care list because you matter. Now, you can't vote next week. Um, uh, you know, take that up with the, uh, the grown-ups in here who voted so you can't vote. You, know, it's a, you can't vote. You've got to be 18 in here to, to vote, but that's okay. You still matter. Um, just, just, can't, just can't vote uh, whenever we vote as a church. Listen, for whatever reason, um, you may feel like it really doesn't matter whether you're here or not. And you may feel like that you don't count you don't count for much in this church or in the kingdom. And this passage just, it screams it to me. The way that he addresses all these different types of people from all these different backgrounds. Nothing could be further from the truth. As long as Christ matters, as long as he counts, you matter. You count. 
The dignity of Christ is stamped on the forehead of every single believer in this room. Every church member matters. And so the beautiful church is the church that lives like that's true. That's where discipleship starts. All right, so that's the people, the people of discipleship. It's, it's all of us, all of us together. Now, Paul also outlines a plan. There's, there's a particular plan. Titus 2 is a classic discipleship passage. I mean, it is a classic one. Churches, they create what, what they might call Titus 2 teams. I've seen that. Titus 2 teams or Titus 2 ministries. Or you may hear people say, I want to grow and become a Titus 2 woman or whatever it is. Uh, and for good reason. Titus 2, it is about discipleship, just maybe not in the way that you think. We think of discipleship so analytically. Well, we want a clearly outlined strategy with specific steps in, in order to take to, to disciple someone or be discipled. And for those of us who genuinely care about growing in Christ and helping others do the same, we're desperate for a system or a method. Tell us what to do. Tell us how to do this. And there are plenty of them out there. There are endless classes and programs and curriculum and styles and methods and formats. And they're discipleship experts. They're out there and that's, they devote their lives to studying discipleship. And, you know, they create entire ministries where they're trying to you come up with a foolproof system of, of discipling people. I've looked into a lot of them. We practice some of them here. But I need to be brutally honest with you. One of the biggest problems that I see in the church today with regard to discipleship is that we are obsessed with talking about discipleship more than we are actually discipling anyone at all. The obsession with discipleship ends with the strategy. Obsess over what strategy you should choose, then you pick one, and then you implement it, and as long as it's happening, we're good. We're content. Our obsession ends with the strategy, and that's it. A lot of Christians talk about discipleship. How many of us practice it? There, I, I can't tell you how ironic this is in this passage. There is an ironic danger in developing a discipleship practice that actually resembles the false teachers Paul is trying to steer Titus away from. Those who, remember, profess to know God but deny him by their works, we can easily become people who profess to disciple one another but deny it by our works. And I say all that to say that we need a clear and biblical plan for discipleship. A clear and biblical plan. Um, but instead of just tossing another method out there and say, hey, you've got this sea of options, here's another. Um, I want to actually help us zoom out a little bit and see a bigger vision for discipleship. And that's going to require us to see two things, a purpose and a plan. So Paul's plan for discipleship has a purpose, and then actually there's a plan that we can see in it too. Okay, the purpose, the purpose. You can't make a plan for discipleship without having and knowing the purpose. People do it all the time, and they have no idea whether their discipleship is successful or not because they don't know why they're doing it. They don't know where they're going. Um, Eric and I went to the Mississippi State game last night with Paul and Stacy. That's why they're wearing blue today. Um, that was a deal we made. 
Um, yeah, <laughs> so just unashamed. You guys look awesome in it, by the way. I love it. Um, but we were there with them, and at some point in the game, Paul and I went to the concession stand, you know, nothing else to do when Kentucky's just beating down, you know, the opponent. It's just, what are you going to do, eat? Um, <laughs> it's just, this is an easy, easy, I know, I'm sorry, I'm sorry. Last week was the sermon on elder characteristics, like, I'm, I, the humility part is just lost on me. I'll, I'll revisit it here in a minute. Um, but no, uh, we went to the concession stand. We go down there, we get just, you know, odds and ends, peanuts and stuff, we're on our way back up. And as we're going up, it just, I don't know why, but for whatever reason, we forgot where we were sitting, evidently, because we just, like, start playing. I mean, we were booking it up the bleachers, just step after step after step, until we finally hear Stacy and Erica, they're like, hey, like that, and they're way behind us. But when we're like, oh, my goodness, you know, and there we were just going, you know, we evidently had no idea where we were going at all. A lot of people approach discipleship just like that. Just like that. It's like, we're, go- we're going, you know, we're meeting for coffee and we're having the class and we're doing the thing. And you have no clue where you're going because you don't understand the purpose of discipleship in the first place. What is it? Discipleship. It's so simple. It's so simple. Discipleship is the process of becoming like Jesus. That's what it is. The process of becoming like Jesus. Theologically, it's related to sanctification. Sanctification, the process by which we become like Jesus in our attitudes and actions. A definition of sanctification, Philippians 2, 12 through 13, you can't do better than that, where Paul says, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who works in you. God's end of things of sanctification, he's working in us. Our end of things in sanctification, we work out our own salvation. Discipleship is the word we give to that. It's the working out of our own salvation. And so discipleship is the church's process of helping one another collectively together change in the direction of Jesus. So, so what can easily happen um, in what we might call discipleship relationships is that the one who's doing the discipling, the, the one, okay, I'm discipling someone, instead of trying to shape them into the image of Jesus as I should be being shaped into the image of Jesus, I'm trying to shape them into the image of myself. And I want them to believe exactly the way I do about every single issue under the sun. I want them to behave exactly the way that I do in in every way possible. And, And you've just lost sight of the purpose of discipleship. Paul's discipleship plan begins with a clear purpose. Everyone in the church, from the older man to the slave, become like Jesus. All right, so, so now we get into it. He's teaching all these different groups of people to develop characteristics that are consistent with the gospel. This is the purpose, that you become like Jesus. Here's what it looks like for everyone in the church. Um, I'm about to disappoint you, though, because the way that I am approaching this sermon, my, uh, again, every single text, whenever you preach it, you have to have a, a clear purpose in what you're trying to show the people. I'm wanting to show you this big picture view of discipleship. I'm not wanting to get into the minutia of every single characteristic that we find in this list. That may be something you discuss at Life Group. I may actually write something later in the week and send out to you. But, so I may disappoint you if I don't like, fully explain every single characteristic listed here. I want you to see the big picture. So, so here we go. Older men are addressed first. Now, according to ancient classifications of age groups, an older man in Paul's day was likely someone 40 and older. I don't make the rules. That's... That's the list, all right? So it'd probably be a little different for us. You know, we, would, we wouldn't necessarily 
put someone who's 40 in that group, uh, but that is, that is the, that's it right there. So older, 40 and up. Older men, they are exhorted by the Apostle Paul to be sober-minded, dignified, self-controlled, sound in faith, love, and steadfastness. And I want you to notice something here. Paul does not take the time to say, and here's how you do that. So, fair or not, I'm not going to explain it for you either. You know why? Sometimes, just like with our kids at home, sometimes there's a time to explain. Here's why we value self-control. Other times, what do you say? Get control of yourself. Right? And sometimes we need that. Sometimes we think too much about things. And for the older men in the room, you need to hear this morning from God's word, be sober-minded, be clear-headed. Be, be temperate in your thought. Be dignified. Be men worthy of respect. Be men that when you walk in a room, you just command the room by, by, by your very presence. Be self-controlled every area of your life. Be sound. Be sound in faith, love, and steadfastness. Older men, you're called to a life of respectability, a life that is free from overindulgence, free from foolishness, free from decadence. You're not meant to just ride off into the sunset and live however you want. You are called to plant your feet firmly in the community of the church, firmly in your family, firmly in your community, in this city, and be men worthy of following, be men of respect and honor. You're called to be men of faith and love and endurance. You're called to live this holistic life of dignity and faith. We need you. We desperately need you to do that. And we're going to see why that works in just a second. Okay, so older women, uh, naturally addressed next. Again, 40 and up. I don't make the rules. Um, Older women are exhorted to be reverent in behavior. Reverent in behavior. Not slanderers or slaves to much wine, which uh, every commentator I read, they made the point like, those two are together for a reason. (laughs) Don't don't drink too much and don't gossip, because every time you drink too much, you gossip. We see those things side by side. Um, but don't, don't gossip maliciously. Don't be slaves to one. Teach what is good. Train the young women. So, so pa- pass on what is good. Be reverent in your behavior. It's to possess a spiritual poise. The expectations of older women are related to their influence on others, especially younger women. Older women in the room, you have an incredibly important purpose in our church. We need your reverence. And I hope hope we're going to see it here and just, I can't get to it. All right, hang on. Let me get through this, then we'll get to why. We need, uh, think about this. We need older women in the room to refuse to slander other people. We, we, we don't need you to be able to explain why you shouldn't slander. We need you to not slander. We, we need you to not gossip. I love the simplicity. It's brutal. At t- I mean, you know, just don't do this. Do this. 
Corey will make you feel better next week. He'll, he'll give you the gospel root of it that comes in verses 11 through 15. This is a command, though. Teach what is good. We need you to teach by word and deed. We need to see your transformation into the likeness of Jesus. And so instead of following the example of your peers, stand out among your peers as faithful followers of Jesus. Okay, younger women. Younger women are next. Um, and they're, they're addressed, not directly, but indirectly through an instruction given to the older women to train the young women. Train them to do, to do seven things. Love your husbands. Love your children. Be self-controlled. Be pure. Work at home. Be kind. And be submissive to your own husbands. Now, now these characteristics and expectations are largely focused on a proper orientation toward the home. Now, this is because it was becoming more and more culturally acceptable and common at, at, in this day and age for women, especially wealthy married women, to forsake the home for other pursuits. So it wasn't, it wasn't this tandem, I'm having a career and I'm being faithful you know, uh, to my husband and faithful to my kids and caring for my responsibilities at home. It's a complete forsaking of responsibilities at home for life in the public square. That this was happening. There was uh, an ideal called the new Roman woman that was really common and spreading throughout the world and was, was happening in Crete as well. And, and so uh, one commentator said the values of the new woman had little to do with traditional commitments to the household. The new morality they emphasized endorsed the freedom to pursue extramarital sexual liaisons and liberties normally and previously only open to men, which placed marital fidelity and household management at risk. And so again, this is speaking to a specific context here when Paul's writing this. And as I said, this is essentially written to younger married women. But the emphasis is placed on when it says things like women working at home, it's not saying, so don't work outside the home. I don't understand why that gets turned into that. That's, that's not what Paul is saying there at all. Like you're forbidden from working outside the home. That would also contradict many other passages in Scripture itself. What he's saying is, don't forsake your home. Younger women, do not, do not forsake your home for any, any other pursuit. Don't forsake it. Don't, don't leave it behind. Uh, management of your household needs to be a priority is essentially what Paul is saying. So he holds out specific expectations for Christian younger women, especially married women. Be committed to your families. Your, your heart should radiate with love and self-control and purity and diligence and kindness and submission to your own husbands. And younger men, be self-controlled. Moving on. Um, slaves, no. Um, that, that's how it feels, though, in the passage. So when you, when you read it, you have all this, uh, you know, to, to younger women. And then verse 6, likewise, urge the younger men to be self-controlled. Uh, if you're a younger man in the room and you're like, cool, one thing, got it. Uh, that isn't a compliment, uh, by the way. Um, you've got all these expectations given to older men, and self, being self-controlled is on that list. For the younger men, it's like, you, you have no hope of being dignified. Like, don't, don't even, you can't even, like, start to proceed. You're going to be sober-minded? We don't trust you with that yet. Control yourself. Plenty to work with right there. And so for the younger men in the room, apply this across your life in whatever way you need to. I don't have to do that for you. The Spirit may do it for you, but He probably doesn't have to do it because you already know. 
control yourself. Be self-controlled in every area of your life. This is the expectation laid out for you. And then slaves are are commanded to be submissive to their own masters, to be well-pleasing, not argumentative, not pilfering, showing all good faith. So elderly elderly men and women are to be full of integrity, full of self-control, models of character to the young. And I hope you're starting to already see how this plays into discipleship. But by just being these things, you act as models of character to the young. Younger women, particularly uh, married women, should not, should not be sleeping around, Paul is saying, essentially. Should, should not just be forsaking the home altogether. The younger men, you know, follow a sim- similar path. Be self-controlled. Now, these expectations that are given, they, they do give us insights into to a plan for discipleship. It has nothing to do with specific strategies of setting up one-on-one meetings or meeting as small groups or, or having a class. I, I just want to show you two things about discipleship. First, according to Paul, discipleship is caught, and second, it is taught. Discipleship is caught, and discipleship is taught. So, so discipleship, or godliness, we could say, is something that happens organically in the church. And here's why. We disciple one another simply by being Christians around each other. Simply by, okay, if you're an older man in the room, and you take this passage to heart, seriously, and and you seriously start to think more sober-mindedly about things, and you're not just carried away with, with everything you see on the news or, you know, everything you read. You're, you're, you're sober-minded in the way that you approach things. That you're, you're dignified in the way that you approach things. And you're doing all of those things around us. The effect that that has on especially younger men, but not, not exclusively younger men. As we see you and interact with you, I mean, it's just a simple fact, like just driving down uh, again to the game. There were frustrating moments when we were on the way because we, you know, we got to a certain parking lot and they said, no, your tickets are not associated with this parking lot. And we were like, okay. And so it was, it was just kind of frustrating. We had to drive all the way around and then we were, and then we were waiting on a shuttle forever. And it was so formative for me to see the patience in Paul Bradley. To see his patience. He didn't have to teach me about patience. He didn't have to open, open a book with me and meet for coffee. Just sitting next to him in the car and experiencing a stressful situation and seeing how he reacted in a Christ-like way had an impact on me. You know what we call that? There's a word for it. What is it? Discipleship. That's discipleship. Godliness being caught in the process of another believer following Jesus. That's that's what we need. Discipleship is when the gospel is just flowing, ebbing and flowing through a church in the lives of people who are striving to align their lives with the character of God. You know that warning we always give to our kids about their friends and the influence, the negative, the bad influence that other friends can have on our kids? And, And we notice maybe someone in their life that's a really bad influence on them and we warn them about them, what are we worried about? Are we worried that they're going to sit down with juice boxes or hot chocolate or whatever kids would have and that the, the other kid is going to teach him a bunch of bad things? No. 
We're worried about them not being taught bad stuff, but catching it, seeing a peer behave in a particular way, and then following suit. That's formation. We need to take that and turn it on its head and apply it in the church. We think discipleship is reading a book with another Christian. Discipleship is learning to follow Jesus from the example and influence of another Christian. So that take those lists of characteristics, when we're all pursuing Jesus in our own particular way, in our own season of life, in our own circumstances, and we do it together, that's a culture of discipleship. And again, we haven't talked about classes or meetings or, or models. That's how it works. Pursue Jesus together. But discipleship, it's also taught. It's not just caught. It's also taught. The older women are commanded to, to train the younger women, to teach what is good. So we pass the gospel down by talking about it with each other. That's what I love about life group is you sort of get both. You have this opportunity as we'll discuss a sermon text or, or, or something like that to, to teach one another about, you know, different things in the scriptures. I love it so much whenever someone in the group says, you know, I was reading this passage and it made me think of another one and they turn to it and they look at it and, they, and, and they're teaching the group something that they've learned from God's word. It's beautiful. Um, and, but at the same time, we get the, the caught experience of discipleship too as we're just interacting with each other and doing life together. But we do. We disciple one another by teaching the faith, passing it down. Discipleship, it, I saw it this morning as I was just walking down to get a bottle of water from the uh, kitchen down there in the fellowship hall, as the children are being discipled by, by our group of, of teachers who are, are pouring into them and teaching them the basics of the faith. That is discipleship too. It is something that has to be taught and learned. So here's a plan. Here's a plan. You want to know how to build a culture of discipleship here? Here, simply. First, pursue the characteristics that are consistent with the gospel. Some, some of them are outlined in our passage here today. Pursue those characteristics in your own life. Be self-controlled. How do I do that? Just do it. You know? Imagine a self-controlled person and how they would react in a situation. Do that thing. You know what I mean? Uh, be dignified. Be sober-minded. Love your families. And, and far more that are, that are not within the scope of this passage. But pursue characteristics consistent with the gospel. Second, this is the hard one. That, you thought that was the hard one. Spend time with other people in our church. That's the hard one. It's not hard. But it's hard for us because it takes time away from other things we might want to do. It is sacrificial. You want to disciple someone else here? You don't have to commit to teach a six-week class. You want to disciple other people here? You, you don't have to set up, you know, 15 one-on-one -on -one meetings at a coffee shop. You can do both of those things. That's fine. But you don't have to. You know what you got to do? Show up and be a Christian. Show up. Just be here on Sunday morning. When you're here, I, I, when you're here and you interact with someone for 10 seconds in the passing of the peace... That's discipleship. When you encourage someone and you love someone, you, you know, if you're sound in faith, love, and endurance, we see that you've gone through a hard time, and man, you just keep showing up. That's discipleship. We are learning from your example. So as much as you're able, just get around us. 
Get around one another, whether it's life group or it's, you know, a men's breakfast or a women's breakfast, any type of gathering. You don't have to come to every single thing we do. I know your schedules are crazy and we all have different life circumstances. It's not, it's not like I'm holding everyone to showing up to every single thing the church has. It's impossible. I don't even do that. Um, but as much as you're able, get around each other and pursue Jesus. And that's discipleship. And then finally, teach others what you know. We all have something to share. You think you don't, you do. That's why I never really love the, the strict model of someone older, someone younger, the older person disciples, the younger person just receives. I've never, I've never loved that because it's like the older person has nothing to learn from the younger person whatsoever. It puts immense pressure on the older person to have all the answers, and that's just not how it works. Teach others what you know. We all have something to share. Finally, um, there is power in discipleship that extends beyond the church. Paul offers three effects of lives that are consistent with sound doctrine. When you orient your life, you, you sort of align your practices, the way you live, with the gospel. You pursue some of these characteristics we have here. It has three effects outside the church. First, the word of God which is sometimes used as a euphemism for the gospel itself. But the word of God is not reviled. Second, opponents have nothing evil to say about us. And third, the doctrine of God our Savior is adorned or it becomes attractive. See, we live in this highly uh, individualized culture and personal autonomy is, is one of the highest virtues here. Um, but at the same time, we all obviously know from experience that the choices we make have consequences not only for us, but for others. And in the church, this is especially true. We, we just don't see it that way. You don't think of your own pursuit of Jesus having an impact on your coworkers. You don't think of it that way. Or if you do, you, maybe you think of it negatively. If I make a bad decision or I do a bad thing, it has bad consequences. It, it works in the more positive direction as well. The way we practice our faith impacts other people in our church and people outside the church. The gospel itself, Paul says, is discredited when we claim to follow Jesus, but then we don't actually follow him. Non-Christians are justified in their accusations of us when no works are flowing from our faith. And what's most striking to me here is that God himself becomes unattractive if our lives model the false teachers of Titus 1 through hypocrisy. And so the problem facing these churches in Crete is the same problem that we face today. Our church will be ugly, it'll be a stench, it'll be a wasteland if we profess to know and follow Jesus without putting our faith into practice. But the opposite is equally true. If we model good works if we put our faith into practice, if we actually follow Jesus, if we actually are being transformed from the inside out, then the gospel, the word of God itself, will not be reviled. Outsiders will have nothing evil to say about us. They won't be justified in it. And our God will be seen as beautiful. We adorn the gospel, the doctrine of our God, by living lives consistent with the gospel. So every single church member witnesses to Jesus simply by following him. We call people to Jesus 
through the way that we live in our families, in our neighborhoods, in our workplaces. You see, the church, the church is beautiful. It doesn't always feel that way. But this portrait we see from Paul, it is, it is beautiful in part because in order to develop consistency in our lives, it's going to take every single one of us. But Paul, he instructed Titus to exhort everyone in the church to align their lives with the character of God, not in isolation, but together. And when a church rallies around the cause of Christ together, when that happens, when we're pursuing the likeness of Jesus together and we are catching godliness and, and the, the influence and example of other people and we're teaching it, when that happens, the power of the gospel is seen and it is felt far beyond the four walls of our church and our God is seen as beautiful to those who are currently his enemies. So let's pursue consistency with the gospel and let's do it together.